please consider supporting the Wednesday blog by going to patreon.com slash s-t-h-o-s-d-k-a-n-e. Thanks. Welcome back to the Wednesday blog with me, Sean Kane. It's Wednesday, 31 January 2024. I've long wondered about what kind of leader I want to be. This week, a coalescing of those ponderings. Leadership is one of those great qualities which we yearn for today. Particularly in this country, agreement among our leaders on the same basic principles of democracy and integrity. We seek the same fundamental truths, even while truth is far more diffuse a concept than ever before. To take the first step towards this restoration, we need to begin talking to each other again, and really work towards rebuilding our mutual understanding of who we are and what we want out of our union. Throughout my life, I've looked up to certain types of leaders, a citizen like Abraham Lincoln, a unifier like Eleanor Roosevelt, and a servant like Pope Francis. Each of these figures took their own stands in their own circumstances of time and place and worked to their own ends, and in some respects, they were successful. I've been humbled to serve as a leader at varying moments and in several capacities, and my own efforts are often rewarded by how I can connect with the people around me. I make a point of working with people, of listening to their ideas, and trying to incorporate them into something all of us working together can be proud of. Today, then, I want to present to you a paper that I wrote at the end of my time as a master's student at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, in November and December of 2018. I presented this paper, Erasmus's Inquiridian Militis Christiani and the Humanist Knight in the in early 16th century England at the American Catholic Historical Association's 2019 annual meeting, co-current with the American Historical Association Conference at the Old Stevens Hotel, now the Hilton, on South Michigan Avenue in Chicago on Friday, 4th of January, 2019. I hope this offers two visions of leadership from the Renaissance one rooted in Erasmus's Christian humanism, which harkens towards the social justice-rooted morality of my own Catholicism, and from the Realpolitik of Niccolò Machiavelli in his timeless book, The Prince. Erasmus's Incredian Militis Christiani, The Handbook of the Christian Knight, was one of the most popular books of its day in Western and Central Europe, translated into eight languages between 1519 and 1542. Its most popular and widely disseminated edition was that published by Johann Froben in Basel in, in 1518. The Incredian's enduring popularity throughout the first half of the 16th century is a testament to its relevance at a time when Europe was witnessing tremendous social and religious upheaval through the reformations of Luther, Calvin, and Henry VIII. 
The Enchiridion was intended to be a guide for Europe's many princes, kings, and lesser lords on how to be good moral rulers, how to be soldiers of Christ, as the title states. Through this role as a guide for good governance, the Enchiridion can be seen as a Christian humanist equivalent to Machiavelli's The Prince, as a guide in Renaissance political philosophy. In considering the Enchiridion's role as a book of political philosophy, this study will consider both the 1518 Froben edition and the 1523 Alnwick manuscript, the earliest known English translation of the Enchiridion, from which all quotes derive. Originally written in 1502, the Enchiridion was said to be inspired by an unpleasant evening that Erasmus experienced in the castle of a knight recorded as John the German. The knight's wife begged Erasmus to write a treatise offering her husband guidance on better manners, thus resulting in the Enchiridion. While the Enchiridion was first published in 1503 by Martens in Antwerp, it did not achieve widespread fame until its first publication by Froben in 1515. The Enchiridion's philosophical inspirations come from a number of different sources, both biblical and classical, from Moses, Solomon, and David, to Julius Caesar and his nephew Augustus, to the heroes of the Iliad and the Aeneid. While this work takes great influence from Platonic philosophy, it nevertheless bathes Platonism in a deep bath of Christian theology, before allowing it to enter into the main work. As a work of Christian humanism, the Enchiridion contains a thorough retelling of the many morality stories found in the Bible. It appears, through the wording of the biblical quotes in Froben's Latin edition, that Erasmus used his own revised translation of the New Testament throughout the Enchiridion, which had been published by Froben in its most widely read form in 1516. Nevertheless, Erasmus draws just as heavily from the Old Testament, looking at Moses, David, and, and Solomon as good and worthy models for the Christian knight of his day. For Erasmus, a Christian ruler should follow closely the teachings of the Church and its Old Testament forebearers. Countering Machiavelli's view that the two safest manners for a prince to control a population is either to destroy them or reside there, Erasmus argued that it is a great abomination if man forsake his fange and or face lord christ for erasmus temporal power was secondary to spiritual well-being arguing later in the same chapter of the enchiridion that the death of the soul is far more consequential than the death of the body as the death of the soul is extreme misery even greater than bodily death the key difference here is that machiavelli wrote as a politician while Erasmus set his words to paper as a theologian. The disparity between the political realities of the early 16th century in Italy and the theological expectations on morality at the same time are stark. Erasmus's chief concern is the well-being of the soul, while Machiavelli's is the accumulation of power and its subsequent preservation. Erasmus's knight is a moralist, while Machiavelli's prince is a pragmatist. Yet where Machiavelli's vision of rulership is often shown as a testament to the various leaders in Italy during the Italian wars, Erasmus shows the theological ideal of a Christian humanist ruler, akin in character to Plato's philosopher kings, who should rule in conjunction between political power and philosophical intelligence. Both Erasmus and Machiavelli refer, reference Moses as a fine example of leadership, 
the former spending the first chapter of his Enchiridion discussing Moses' role as a leader of the Hebrews and his loyalty to God's will and light, while Machiavelli names Moses, alongside Cyrus, Romulus, and Theseus, as the most excellent of princes. While Machiavelli considered striking Moses from this list because he was a mere executor of things that were made ordained by God, and thus less a prince in his own right and more a vassal for a higher power, he nevertheless respected Moses' leadership of the Hebrews and saw him as an equal to Cyrus, Romulus, and Theseus through his deliverance of the Hebrews out of slavery. Erasmus's Enchiridion makes great use of Platonic philosophy, referring back to the Athenian academics teaching time and again in his work. Erasmus noted in the fifth chapter of his Enchiridion, entitled Of the Diversity of Affections, that Plato and the later Stoics both saw philosophy to be nothing else but a remembrance of death. Interestingly, in Froben's 1518 Latin edition, this line reads, With nothing else, Plato thinks philosophy, however, to be a meditation of death. The differences in meaning between the words remembrance and meditation is striking. While they are synonyms, the former appears to have changed in meaning over the centuries, becoming today a manner of meditation about a person or event that takes place only after the, that person has died, while a meditation can happen when they are still living. For the translator of the Alnwick manuscript, this difference does not appear to have been as profound, and by and large, it would appear that, at least in the translator's eyes, remembrance and meditation are a good pair of cognates. Machiavelli's text looks at death as an inevitability, and in many cases a means to an end, especially for men who forget more quickly that the death of the father than the loss of their inheritance. In Machiavelli's view, while the, while the living may mourn the dead, they celebrate in the riches left behind by the deceased and seek to improve their own fortunes off the demise of their fathers. Machiavelli accepts that this degree of swift respect for the dead is tantamount to theft, yet he dismisses any degree of moral ambiguity by noting how common and easy the practice can be, writing, It is always easy to find cause to take away property, and anyone who lives by theft will always find reasons to occupy the things of others. For Erasmus, death is a moment of great spiritual significance one to be taken seriously in securing the sanctity of one's soul. Yet for Machiavelli, death is a mere moment of great personal significance, one to be taken seriously in securing one's fortune and power from the deceased, whether they be one's father or another. If philosophy is merely a meditation on death, as Erasmus argued, then what is life but a march towards that inevitable fate? And, if one is fortuitous enough, heaven, which is promised to him that fighteth swiftly. The humanist knight, therefore, should strive to fight their battles with speed, and in doing so keeps in mind the prospect of eternal life in heaven, and end the suffering of those whom they are fighting sooner. Fighting should only be a last resort, as the humanist knight should consider their moral and spiritual well-being before taking up arms against another. The promise of heavenly reward drives the humanist knight, sending them into their world with the purpose of ensuring their own moral well-being and salvation. One's soul should be refreshed with manna from heaven and with water that came out of the hard rock. 
consuming the heavenly donation and fortifying oneself so that neither strength, neither high nor low, nor no other creature shall separate us from the love of God, which is Christ Jesus. In this sense, Erasmus argued that the rewards of mortal, of mortal riches and conquests should not come before the spiritual rewards awaiting the humanist knight, faithful to Christ in heaven. In contrast, Machiavelli argued in favor of prolonged war, if only to secure a prince's authority over their own people and supremacy over their adversaries. A prolonged war, according to Machiavelli, is sometimes necessary to secure the authority of the prince against threats both foreign and domestic. And while one might lose some territory or even some cities, as in the case of Philip V of Macedon, yet the loss of a few cities ranks lower as a threat to the stability and security of a prince's power. For Machiavelli, Philip V was a strong leader because he acted when others would have passively watched as events unfolded in front of them. He stands as a good example of the Machiavellian prince, as he was willing to make sacrifices of his cities and territories, their populations included, in order to preserve his power. In contrast, for Machiavelli, a bad prince is one who loses their principalities, after so many years of rulership, not because of fortune, but because of their own sloth. The Machiavellian prince is an active ruler, directing their supporters on the, on the ground with a tenacity that is matched in the humanist night by the latter's desire to ensure the purity of their soul, despite the devilish business of the, of the titular Enchiridion, not only a handbook, but also a hand dagger. Both the Machiavellian prince and the humanist knight have agency. The chief difference is in how they use it. For the prince, their agency is best utilized through the fortifying of oneself and one's possessions to weather any future assaults, or other attempts at threatening the prince's standing. The prince acts only to ensure the stability of their power and its continued vitality, standing on one's own two feet rather than with the support of another. As Machiavelli wrote, the only sure way to preserve one's power is through one's own virtue, or power, depending on the translation. The use of the word virtu for both virtue and power in Italian is striking, showing the intense relationship between one's morality and one's authority. With virtue and power standing hand in hand, Machiavelli's perspective comes clearer to light. He is writing not just as a pragmatist, but also as a political veteran of his own times, advising princes how to seek virtue, much like Erasmus's advice to the humanist knight. Only Machiavelli's idea of virtue is clothed in the unstable trappings of the Italian wars that raged throughout his life and deeply affected the world of the Italian city-states. For Erasmus, virtue comes from God and is shared by all humanity. Thus, Erasmus writes to the humanist knight, Thou shalt be able to do all thing in the power of God. But in order to do this, the knight must take heed that thou be a member of the body. It is interesting here that the Alnwick manuscript translator of the Enchiridion does not conjugate thou shalt be as thou shalt art or thou shalt beast as was used in some dialects of early modern English. This particular pair of lines in the Alnwick manuscript do not match exactly the Latin in Froben's edition where the English where in English the knights can can do all things in the power of God. In Latin they will be able to achieve the same in capite who is identified in the previous sentence as Christ. Two points can be taken from this. 
Firstly, that early modern English verb conjugations inherited the structures of their Germanic roots, moving the conjugation on to the modifiers as in German and Old English. Thus, the verb appears as thou shalt be rather than thou shalt art, which mirrors this verb's modern descendant, you should be. Secondly, the translator of the Alnwick manuscript rephrased and adapted the text to fit the expectations of an English-speaking audience, especially when translating from, from a language with a more fluid word order like Latin to one with strict rules like English. Returning to the political philosophy, the relationship between the humanist knight and the Machiavellian prince shows the diverging perspectives of Renaissance humanists on both sides of the Alps. Whereas Italy was embroiled in war between rival city-states supported by distant powers fueling the pragmatic political philosophy of the prince, the political structures of northern Europe remained largely stable, with the old kings, princes, and magnates ruling over the continent. Erasmus's humanist knight seeks power, but only through the blessing and support of God. Thus, the humanist knight must remain a moral and upright person, standing firm in the warm glow of God's grace, while the prince believes he will find victory through his own exploits and prowess as both a politician in the government of his principality and as a commander on the battlefield. The knight believes that victory is put whole in the hands of God and by him in our hands. The greatest difference between the knight and the prince is their understanding of virtue. For the knight, this comes from God's favor of one's good deeds, while for the prince, it results from political stability. What can be seen in Erasmus's Enchiridion and Machiavelli's Prince are two very different views of the role of the ruler and the source of that ruler's power. This reflects the differing political situations between Italy and Northern Europe in the early 16th century, when both authors were writing. Furthermore, when translated into English in the form of the Alnwick manuscript, the Enchiridion offers the modern reader not, not only an idea of what the ideal knight was for Erasmus and the manuscript's translator through the translator's interpretation of Erasmus, but also an image of the role of the faith in the promulgation of humanist values amongst the English gentry and aristocracy in the first decades of the 16th century. Thank you for bearing with an admittedly unusual Wednesday blog this week. This idea began somewhat differently than it ended. I hope to return to this topic of leadership again and write about Pope Francis's vision of the servant leader, which I find quite compelling. The Wednesday blog is written, read, and produced by me, Sean Kane, and I also came up with the theme music. You can learn more about my work by going to linktree slash Kane. That's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash S-T-H-O-S-D-K-A-N-E. There you'll learn more about my website and my blog. Thanks. Thanks as always to my regular listeners, including monthly supporters, Elizabeth Duke, John Lundy, Alex Brisson, and George Vile. You can join them to, uh, by supporting this podcast for only $5 a month at patreon.com slash S-T-H-O-S-D-K-A-N-E. Uh, you get your name in the credits, too. I appreciate all their help. Thank you.
This podcast is distributed by Spotify. Learn more at podcasters.spotify.com.